This week, uh, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. Starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the, to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Good morning. Um, I'm going to start today by asking you to respond to a couple of questions. And with, with my teaching background in math and some statistical work, I fully acknowledge that what I'm doing is uh, biased. Um, I'd be considered uh, proposing some leading questions, existence of peer pressure, uh, being a main offense, uh, Gallup poll question protocol is probably being broken um, as I do this. So, but... But based on the setting here and assuming a common belief that, that I believe we do have, I believe the response that I get is going to be accurate and appropriate. So first question, raise your hand if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Second question, raise your hand if you believe that upon the second coming of Jesus, believers in Christ will also be raised from the dead. Yeah. So, so your responses would be welcomed and agreed to by Paul, who wrote what uh, Corey just read. It, and if all believers in Corinth would have believed just as we've responded, 1 Corinthians, or at least chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, may not have needed to have been written. So let, let me read a few verses prior to what Corey read here in, in uh, chapter 15. And this, again, is Paul writing. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And then a little bit later in verses 12 through 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So Paul had come to Corinth and preached the gospel of Jesus about our sinful and fallen state, our need for repentance and forgiveness, 
Jesus' sacrificial, sacrificial death on the cross, being buried in the tomb for three days, his glorious resurrection, and then his appearance to many witnesses before ascending to heaven. And, and this gospel story, the one that we're very familiar with, is how and why we as believers in Christ have been reconciled to him. And that, that's our story of salvation. But what had happened, some in Corinth were doubting the reality of resurrection with Christ. Now, no one is necessarily specifically named, but in the Barnes notes that I use, there was reference that they made to the possibility of some of the influences of Greek philosophy, followers of Sadducean teachers, or an influence from the Gnostic philosophy as creating some of those questions that were existing in Corinth. So those confusions, those questions is what Paul was responding to with this scripture. And as we look through some of the statements that Paul's making through chapter 15, I want to kind of make four points, recognize four things that Paul's referring to. First of all, the beginning of verse 20, Paul is very adamant about the resurrection of Jesus and those who will join him in heaven. Now, different versions and translations emphasize this same sentiment with a little bit different words. Uh, In the NIV, the wording says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Uh, The NLT and ESV, this is what Corey read, says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And even going to some of the more traditional, the King James Version says, now, and that emphasis is important, now, is Christ risen from the dead. Barnes notes commentary actually takes two-thirds of a page explaining and covering the emphasis of those words, indeed, in fact, and now. So Paul's insisting that the recognition of Jesus' resurrection is critical to all that comes after that. And somehow, if, if that is lessened, if that becomes less important somehow, that destroys the basis of all our faith. So indeed, in fact, now, that's demanding recognition that Jesus' resurrection is pure fact and not up for debate. And then Paul, in a lot of what follows in chapter 15, is verification is a proof of resurrection of believers to follow. Now, now some of the specifics in the story of Jesus' uh, resurrection. We we remember in Luke 24, 5 through 6, Mary Magdalene and the other women went to the grave and they were told by the angel, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's risen. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked and talked. Fully alive, fully well. In John 20, Jesus personally appeared and talked with the disciples. Once when Thomas was gone, a second time when Thomas was there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, refers to Jesus appearing to more than 500 at a time. 7 and 8, Jesus appeared to James, all the apostles, and to Paul himself. And even in Matthew 28, I, I always find this interesting, it's on record that the guards were paid off by the chief priest to lie about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what we believe, Jesus Christ rose from the grave, just as he said he would. 
And the vast majority of 1 Corinthians 15 all the way through is Paul's logical and theological argument proving that since Jesus Christ has risen, we will rise as well. The website EnduringWord.com explains the phrase first fruits that Paul uses in verse 20 as verifying that the resurrection of Jesus represents our resurrection. The first of more fruits, more occurrences of resurrection that are going to be coming. Resurrection with Christ, that is going to happen. This was the first fruit. It's going to happen again. Romans 6.5 also proclaims this. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Theologian, writer, and pastor John MacArthur says this in his commentary of First Fruits. Says this, First Fruits, speaks of the first installment of harvest to eternal life in which Christ's resurrection will precipitate and guarantee that all of the saints who have died will be resurrected also. So all of this is simply to say because Jesus overcame death and rose from the grave, we will also be rising on that glorious day. Second point, verses 21 and 22, we read that death came through a man, Adam, and therefore resurrection from the dead comes also through a man, Jesus, who came down to earth in form of a man. And in looking at resources and insights for this, I ran across an interesting question that would be for a different study or a different sermon another day. And that question is this. Was Adam created mortal or immortal? And growing up, I always assumed that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, everything was perfect, which meant to me they would never die. And part of this question, maybe that's not the case. Um, and here's a bit of some of the questions for that. In Genesis 2, there are two different trees that are specifically named in the garden. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is the tree that God commanded Adam and Eve to not eat from. The other tree identified in Genesis 2 is the tree of life. And there's no recorded command to not eat of that tree. So, so one commentary I just saw quickly, and again, not, not a deep look into this question, gave this perspective, said, since Adam and Eve have sinned, they'd eaten from the tree of knowledge, God banned them from the garden, guaranteeing that they would not have a chance to eat of the tree of life. Therefore, if they would have done that, they would have gained eternal life in a sinful and fallen state. So as Adam and Eve left the garden, not eating of the tree of life, their sin, their actions gave no opportunity for anyone following them, none of us, to experience anything but death at the end of their life and the end of our life. No chance to eat of that tree of life at that time. So that's how Adam brought death into the world. But then Jesus chained that. Jesus brought eternal life into this world. By being crucified and rising again three days later, 
Jesus made it possible for our sins to be covered. He undid the eating of the tree of knowledge. And then we have an opportunity to live eternally because of his resurrection. So Jesus became the tree of life that we can now partake of. We can live forever with him. But here's something else that I hadn't necessarily thought of before. Everyone, those who are saved in Christ and also those who are not saved in Christ will live forever. We're all going to be eternal beings. Hopefully in heaven. But if not, that's an eternal life. John 5 28 through 29, Jesus said this. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Judgment day and eternal life will come for everyone. Judgment day can be a glorious day, or it can be a very terrifying day. Jesus Christ died so we could trust in him and be saved through our faith in him. We do not need to be condemned to hell unless we decide to continue in our own selfish ways seeking self. Everyone has the opportunity to eternal life with him. Jesus is the tree of life. We each get to decide how and where we're going to live eternally. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we're encouraged by Paul who says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So eternal life in heaven is awaiting those who choose it with and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Resurrection. Third, this will be verses 25 through 27. We read, the enemies of God, including death, will be defeated. All will be under his feet. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 25, this promise was given as well. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. God is and will be in full control. Jesus defeated death through the cross, through the grave, rising again. And, and using that phrase, he will put things under his feet. I, I was curious of artwork. And so I did a Google image search to see what, what has been created to represent that. And so here's a couple things I found. Um, some of the sculptures and paintings depicted included a lion, which would be God, standing over a snake, Satan with a paw firmly planted on his head. Jesus, and this was frequent, Jesus in midair, sometimes looking up, sometimes looking down, but clearly empowered to be in control of everything else in the painting individuals around under his rule. 
And then there was also some pictures of a throne from which to rule. And in all of those things that I saw, some common and similar threads depicted in each, there was a victory of battle that had been won. But there was love and care for those that were considered to be his own. There was a finality. There was an authority. And there was, in most cases, a calmness to the authority. It wasn't always a picture of a battle. The battle was completed. And so as to the idea of authority, this came to my mind. How many of you are familiar with the show, Andy Griffith Show? Andy Taylor is a sheriff at Mayberry. And there's one episode there where Barney, his deputy, very inept, silly, is driving along and he finds a couple of big, husky, strong men who've set up a roadside produce shop, which was illegal. And so the first time Barney goes to confront the men, tries to get them to move. And they threaten and bully him. And for those familiar with the show, you can just envision, you know, skittish little Barney runs away. He goes back, talks with Andy about it. And Andy encourages him. Yeah, you need to go do what you need to do. So later on, Barney goes back to the same location. And instead of being run off, as he was threatened again, but Barney stands firm, speaking and acting on authority of a system and people that had put him in place, given him a rightful responsibility and authority as a government official in that case, authority to enforce the law. He had the authority. And the thing is, the bullies knew it. So when Barney stood and spoke with authority, they left. They were defeated. And that's the authority that God has. He created this world. He created the laws that we are governed by, physically, spiritually as well. Angels and demons, Satan included, know that God has the authority. And God has that ultimate authority to do whatever he needs, whatever he wishes, in whatever manner he sees fit. He will rule with truth, with justice, and with love. Or eventually, as I'm going to read here in a little bit, with direct, severe, and deserved punishment. In Revelations 20, verses 1 through 3, John wrote of the vision that he saw of God's mighty authority. And this is what he wrote. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And there's many references in the Bible of the battle between good and evil. And I fully believe that that battle with good and evil is one that's waged across our world, across our nation, 
every single day. The battle between angels and demons, God and Satan, the battle for hearts of men, the battle for sons, for daughters, for families, for marriages, relationships, congregations, any relationship that is honoring God, there's a battle that, the Satan, that Satan is waging. And we need to be in prayer over those battles. Sometimes even those temptations and tendencies within our own hearts. But here's one thing interesting about John's vision in, Roman, in Revolution 20. It says it was an unnamed angel of God coming down from heaven to bind Satan. It wasn't God himself. Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris said this, the final importance of Satan is perhaps indicated in the fact that it is not the Father who deals with him, nor the Christ, but only an unnamed angel. Now, part of this is to say that Satan is not the opposite equal of God. God will not have to go and deal with Satan. God will be able to send one of his representatives, fully authorized, fully empowered to carry out his will. God has full authority over death for the good of his children. And God has full authority over Satan for the good of his children. And Satan has to obey. Last, and this goes with the... Uh, the theme in the song that we sang here a little bit ago. In verse 28, we read that God will be all in all. And some other translations say it this way, God will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. So this, this verse continues that same theme of authority that God holds. Death is defeated. Satan is bound and done. God is no longer allowing Satan to roam and create his hate and confusion in the hearts of man. That's what we read in, in Revelation. A full realization of the power of God, of his being all in all, will be evident. In Job 42.2, Job says this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The power of God will be on display comparable to that which caused David to say this in Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, God will fully be revealed as all in all. Now, there are some who actually will take some of the verse of 28, the very beginning, and argue against the deity of Jesus claim that Jesus was subject to God. Therefore, if Jesus is subject to God, how can he be God? But Jesus is who he claimed to be. In John 17, 1 through 5, this is Jesus praying heavenward. And he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The Son glorifying the Father, the Father glorifying the Son, both honoring, both glorifying one another together. And and did you catch the part in verse 5 near the end? Jesus prayed, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus was with God before and during creation. In John 10, 30, Jesus also says, I and the Father are one. Jesus claims to be God, exactly who he is. C.S. Lewis has a quote in his book, and I've referred to this a couple times before in Mere Christianity, about the truth of Jesus' identify or identity being God. Because there are some individuals that would say Jesus was a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And here's C.S. Lewis's response. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And when we sang all in all, we claimed, we sang Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the one who came down to earth after being up in heaven with God as the world was created the one willing to sacrifice himself, die upon the cross, covering our sins, covering Adam and Eve's sins. The one who told everyone who was listening and who was paying attention that he was going to rise again in three days, and he did. Death has been defeated, and we are now set to live for eternity with him in his presence. John MacArthur says this about verse 28. It says, Christ will continue to rule because his reign is eternal. But he will reign in his former full and glorious place within the Trinity, subject to God in the way eternally designed for him in full Trinitarian glory. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. So I want to go even further into chapter 15 to to finish this off because this is where Paul provides a conclusion related as to why he wrote this chapter in the first place. So 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. 
We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And all this phrasing with imperishable, perishable, our bodies right now are perishable. We will be imperishable, blessed by God. Continuing in verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be raised with Christ, those living and those previously dead. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we will have new bodies, and those bodies will be imperishable. God has given us victory over death, and therefore today, tomorrow, all this week, stand firm. Let nothing move you. So with all of this promise, what, what is our response to that promise of glory? Well, let the world know of his promises. These aren't new things that I'm going to say right here. Let the world know of his forgiveness, of his goodness. Let the world know and let them see and experience the peace, the joy, the love that we have because of him, because of that gospel story. And I want to finish today playing a portion of press conference following the uh, University of Oklahoma women's softball team after they won the national championship this past June. Incredibly successful team. 62 games for the season. One loss. They won the national championship for three years now. The last three years. But as you'll hear, their focus is a bit different from what you might expect. For the players, I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious, it's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it 
and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So. They took heat for that. But what a loud witness. And there's other scenarios, other comments that they've made along the way, recognizing living a life for Christ doesn't guarantee you win a national championship. That's not why they live for Christ. That was just something that happened along the way. There's other, other videos of the, the first girl that spoke, speaking to a group of high school softball players at a camp. And she's holding a Bible. And she's reading from the Bible and telling her story of faith. So what do we do? Wherever we are, we praise God. We live with joy. We live boldly honoring him with all we say and do, making him Lord of our life because as he was raised, we will be raised. Worldly results and acclaim don't matter, but we seek him first. And my favorite verse is Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And if you take a look at all these things that are listed up above in the previous verses, none of them have anything to do with worldly acclaim. None of them. It's living in community with Christ. So let the world know, first and above all, I invite the team forward.